And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, if you have been following and following along and tracking, as it were, with this series in Romans, you may be getting to the point where you're thinking, why does Paul keep hammering on the truth that God's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone? How many times does he have to say it? Well, he said at first, back in chapter 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He hits it again in 326, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He hammers again in 328, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, he doesn't stop in chapter 3. Here in chapter 4, verse 3, he's actually citing Genesis 15, 6. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited, credited to him for righteousness. And in case we missed it, he repeats it in verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If you still didn't get it, he comes out again in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Not done yet, he says it again in verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. All right, so Paul's still not done. It's all over our passage this morning. He anticipates the reaction of the religious Jews who will still be thinking, yes, God credits righteousness by faith, but it's only for the circumcised who believe, not for the uncircumcised Gentiles. So in verses 9 through 12, which is kind of the first half of our passage this morning, he proves from the Old Testament that God credited righteousness to Abraham by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In proving this, he relentlessly beats that same drum. In verse 9, he cites again Genesis 15, 6, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. In verse 10, he insists that it was credited to him while he was still uncircumcised. And then in verse 11, he repeats that the, the uncircumcised who believe, they will have righteousness credited to them. And then in verse 12, he applies it to the circumcised Jews. They too must follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham, which he had while he was still uncircumcised. But Paul, he, he kind of anticipates another, Paul's very good at this, knowing what his argument is making them think and then addressing it and saying, I know you're thinking this, but... So, he anticipates another objection from the religious Jews. Surely we become heirs of God's promises to Abraham through the law. Gentiles must keep the law to, keep, to come under those blessings. And that was the teaching of the Judaizers who plagued Paul's ministry. But Paul insists that the true heirs of the promise to Abraham are not those who are of the law, but those who are of faith. In 4.16, Paul writes, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so faith and grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So why does Paul keep hammering on this truth that God's righteousness is credited to us, credited to us by faith alone? I think it's because he knows just how deeply embedded in the fallen human heart is this idea that we can do something to recommend ourselves to God when in fact we can't. 
Now, the last two millennia of human history has proved him to be right. All religions, including some major ones that go under the heading of or the label of Christian, are works-oriented. They teach what Paul explicitly and repeatedly denies here, that we are saved by keeping religious rituals and not by, um, and by our good deeds. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about one of those who, who claim to be Christian. It's Roman Catholic. Okay? In the councils of Trent, this was 1547. This was 30 years after the start of the Reformation. And the drum that was being beaten the loudest in the Reformation is that you were justified by faith alone. Now, there were other points, okay, but that was the big one. You're justified by faith alone. Well, in 1547, the Roman Catholic Church had the Council of Trent, and they responded, responded to the Reformation and to this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, the canons and the decrees of Trent, they represent the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church to this day. In the early 1960s, the Second Vatican Council, it's called Vatican II, it declared that these doctrines, these canons, are irreformable, meaning we stand on what we determined, what we said at Trent in 1547. Now, the Council of Trent did not deny that we are saved by God's grace through faith. But it added works to faith by combining justification, which is, you know, right standing with God. It combined that with sanctification, which is our growth in holiness. It made justification a process, just like sanctification. And that process depends in part on our good works. Now, I'm going to read you four of the canons. This is from Session 6, all right? Um, and it's written in the 1500s, so it sounds kind of King James, but that's okay. It says, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, by the way, that's exactly what we believe, let him be anathema. That means cursed. If you believe that, according to Roman Catholic Church, you're cursed. That's Canon 9. Here's Canon 12. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, again, that's exactly what we believe. Their conclusion, let him be anathema. From Canon 24, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Just one more. If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. 
Now, all four of those things that they are stating is exactly what believe. So the Roman Catholic Church declares that you are justified before God by grace through faith, but not by faith alone. We must add our good works to faith in order to obtain, to preserve, and to increase our right standing with God. And if you don't do enough of that while you're alive on the earth, then you can go to purgatory. And through prayers and giving and other things, someday you can get out of purgatory and actually go to heaven. This process that they're talking about is not completed at the initial point of faith, which we believe it is. And not even in this life, but hopefully in purgatory. So the Catholic Church denies the sufficiency of the guilty sinner's faith in Christ's sacrifice as the means of right standing before God. And even if you don't come from a Catholic background, because of the fall, you're prone to trust in your own religious activities and your own good works as the basis of your standing before God. But Paul wants us to see that salvation does not come through religious rituals or the law, but through God crediting righteousness through faith alone. Let's pray. Father, Paul is spending a chapter and a half just on this one thing that justification is by faith alone. We are so prone as fallen human beings to trust in ourselves and, and what we can accomplish, Father, when that is, that is not the ticket. Father, it's simply trusting in what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. I pray that you would break through barriers this morning. Father, that we would hear a word from you, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up and be drawn to him, the only one from whom we can get salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This blessing that starts our passage this morning, it refers to the blessing of salvation, to God not counting our sins against us. Now, first, Paul shows that Abraham was not justified after he was circumcised, but before. So that's point number one. The blessing of salvation does not come through keeping religious rituals, but through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. Now, we can apply this to any religious ritual, such as baptism, communion, going to mass, praying the rosary, whatever. We were watching, my wife and I were watching a movie last night, and uh, it's about the uh, 13 young men that were, uh, you know, in the cave, and they were there for, I don't know, 14, 15 days before they first got the first boy out. Well, when they found out that they were actually alive, they got divers, it was, it was, this was like on day, oh, I don't know, five or six, they finally get divers way back, and they are all, now that they're alive, everybody's real excited, but they show this one scene of one, I'm not sure, I would call him a priest, I don't know, holy man, that's what they call him in the movie, a holy man, praying. And they're offering sacrifices to the spirit of the forest and the spirits of all the earth to watch over those boys. It's not praying to God. We create things. Paul talked about that back in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, right? That we suppress that truth in unrighteousness and we actually create gods out of things that walk on for, you know, men and, and creatures and just birds and all these different things. We create our own gods rather than worshiping the one true God. Now, uh, we can sum up Paul's uh, flow of thought here under really two headings. 
A, God credits righteousness to the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a shocking point that Paul makes all the way back in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, as I said, when we covered this verse a while back, many people think that it should read something like this. But to the one who tries hard and believes in him who justifies all good people, his faith is credited as righteousness. But Paul specifically states that on the one hand, this person isn't trying hard. In fact, he says he does not work. And on the other hand, he isn't described as a good person, but rather as ungodly. He isn't a religious person who tries to obey God. He isn't a person who devotes his life to serving the poor. He isn't a person who never deliberately hurt anyone. He's ungodly. God justifies the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus. Now the Jews, obviously, they view the Gentiles as godly, um, ungodly, but they viewed themselves as, as a godly people. Circumcision was the main religious ritual that distinguished them from the Gentile dogs. You may remember when Abraham was 99 years old, God commanded him to circumcise himself and all the males in his household. He extended that command for all Jewish baby boys throughout all generations, that they be circumcised on the eighth day. It was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. But here in our passage, Paul points out a simple fact of Old Testament chronology. Abraham was circumcised some 14 years after he believed God in Genesis 15:6. That means that Abraham was in effect still an uncircumcised Gentile when he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul effectively turns the tables on the Jews who argued for circumcision as essential to salvation. Now, he's not saying that it's, he, let's, let's see, he's saying that it's not for the Gentiles to enter through the gate of Jewish circumcision, circumcision, but rather for the Jews to enter through the gate of Gentile faith apart from circumcision. To put it in more modern terms, you don't get saved, you don't get justified by being baptized, whether as an infant or an adult, or by taking communion. You do not get saved by going to church or by faithfully saying your prayers or, or doing penance. Rather, you get saved when God credits the very righteousness of Christ to you the instant you believe in Him. Salvation doesn't come through performance of any religious rituals, but only through uh, faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Well then, what is the role of religious rituals? Are they worthless? Worthless? Should we forget about them? Well, no. B, religious rituals serve as signs and seals of the reality that comes through faith in Jesus. Now, in 4.11, Paul refers to circumcision as both a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. And this makes him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's talking about the Gentiles. That righteousness might be credited to them. Now, a sign is not the real thing, is it? But it does point to it. If there were a sign down the road that said Crawfordville 10 miles, that sign is not the city, but it points you to it. Circumcision was a physical sign in every, man, every Jewish man's flesh that pointed to the fact that he belonged to God. 
He was in covenant with God and God's people. He was separated to God through the shedding of blood. It was a sign of purification from the flesh so that both Moses and the prophets, they exhorted Israel spiritually to circumcise their hearts. Now, as Christians, baptism is a sign that your sins have been washed away through faith in Christ. It pictures the truth that you have been identified completely or immersed with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The Lord's Supper, that's a sign of the new covenant, showing that you are a partaker in Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. The sign is not the reality, but it points to the reality. The reality is God's promise to forgive all of our sins and to impute Christ's righteousness to our account by faith alone. Now, the ritual is a sign of the reality, but if you don't have the reality, the ritual is worthless. Now, also, Paul refers to circumcision as a seal, not only a sign, but a seal. A seal authenticates or attests to the reality of something. Uh, a notary's seal on a document attests that it's the real thing. Circumcision attests to the reality of Abraham's previous faith that, faith that justified him and to God's covenant with him. But it was the faith that justified, not the act of circumcision. Now, in 4.12, Paul applies this to the Jews, but then he narrows it by saying that it does not apply to all Jews, but only those who also follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham. And he kind of twists the knife when he adds, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Now, he's saying that whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, the key thing to believe is God's promise to justify the ungodly. The rituals, they follow as signs and seals, but the reality is through faith alone. So, what is the benefit of religious rituals such as baptism and communion? Should we do them at all? Well, yes, Scripture commands us to do them. But they should only be done after you have put your trust in Christ as your righteousness. Then they become a sign pointing you to the reality and a seal that attests to your faith in Christ. But Paul anticipates that his Jewish readers will bring up the law. Surely Paul wouldn't throw out the law. Surely you Gentiles have to keep the law in order to call Abraham their father. So number two, the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping the law, but through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. Now the Jews would not have restricted the obedience that they thought was necessary for salvation. They wouldn't have restricted it to circumcision. They would have expanded it to include the whole law. Paul could have, could have countered uh, their argument as he does in Galatians 3.17 by showing that the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham and it does not invalidate that previous covenant. Just In other words, this is the same argument that, what, that there was for circumcision. It's Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. It's not till chapter 17 that he circumcised. That's 14 years. Then it's not till Exodus 20 and Moses is on the scene and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is at the top. And that's when Israel gets the law. And that's 430 years after Abraham believed and it was credited to him righteousness. That's a, that's a pretty solid argument 
But Paul doesn't do that. He actually um, kind of goes with the argument found in Galatians 3.18 that the concept of a covenant promise is fundamentally opposed to the concept of law. Not the law, any law. He states this principle in 4.13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he explains in verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law, those who obey the law, who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. So he's saying two things here. A, if you seek to be justified by keeping the law, you make faith void, thereby nullifying God's promise. The principle of receiving a gift by faith is the opposite of receiving a, war, a reward that you work for. If you offer me a gift and I say, let me pay you back by working for it, I have turned the gift into something that I owe you for. God promises to justify the ungodly person who does not deserve it, but who receives it freely by His grace. If you mix human works with God's grace, then grace is no longer grace. The promise of salvation as a free gift received by faith, it has been nullified and turned into a debt for payment of services rendered. And that's not grace. But secondly, here B, if you seek to be justified by the keeping of the law, rather than gaining the blessing of salvation, you actually will incur God's wrath. In 4.15, Paul explains why the attempt to gain, gain salvation by law is doomed to fail. He says, for the law brings wrath. <laughs> the law brings wrath because no one can keep it perfectly. To gain acceptance by God, by keep, or with God, by keeping the law, you have to keep it perfectly. James talks about this in James 2.10. That if you fail at any point, you're, you're, you're guilty of the whole law. Any failure makes you liable for God's judgment. But then Paul adds this interesting phrase. And I had to do a lot of reading. Most of the stuff I've been reading did not really address this, but I found one guy who did, and I went, yes, that's what's been on my heart. I didn't know how to say it. Paul adds, but there, where there is no law... There is no transgression. Now, on the surface, that sounds, yeah, that's true. If there's no law, then you can't break the law. You've got to have a law for you to be able to break it. There can be no transgression of a law if that law does not exist. So the absence of law, keep this in mind, the absence of law is the absence of transgression. transgression. Because as soon as law shows up, guess what? We transgress. Well, second, think about this. There, I believe, are divine dispensations where law is not the principal form of relationship with God. Let me say that again. There, there may be, there are, I believe, divine dispensations where law is not the principal form of relationship with God. I think this describes heaven. We're going to have new bodies. One of the things that's going to be nice about these bodies is they no longer have the sin nature. Okay? We're not going to be 
bugged by that anymore. We will not be capable of sin. Third, that to come into a spiritual place where there will be no transgression, men must be removed completely from under the principle of law. Because like I said, if there's law, we're going to break it. Again, this sounds like heaven. Fourth, the only place of freedom from the law is the place of the inheritance where we are heirs according to promise. So what I said a minute ago, law and promise, they're, they're, they're against each other. All right? But there's a day coming when, when those of us who believe in Christ will be in heaven. We will not have any more sin. There will, there will be no need for law. Right now, if I had a sin magnet, okay, I've got a sin magnet, and I run it over John Cooper, he's going to respond to it in a certain way. I can run it over Beth, she's going to respond in another way. But every one of us in here are going to respond to that sin magnet because it is part of our nature. Come heaven, guess what? We don't have a sin nature. We'll be free from sin. That magnet will mean nothing. It will have no draw, no capacity to drag us away from following God like we should. There will be no law because there will be no sin. Now, I didn't know how to... Earlier in the week, I was going over this. I'm like, this is saying more simply that where there's no law, there's no sin. That's kind of obvious. If there's not a, if there's not a law, you're not sinning. But I think it's saying something about the life to come where we will be in a relationship with God not based on law. It's going to be based totally on love. Law will not have a place in heaven. Okay, well, I want you to also note that there are, only, there are two and only two possible eternal futures for every person. And Emery's getting fussy. That's okay. She did good to go this long. That's your sin nature. Oh, boy. Either you are an heir of this world as a true descendant of Abraham, which is what verse 13 says, or you're an heir of wrath as one who sought to be right with God by keeping the law. Now, the phrase heir of the world there that Paul uses, it doesn't occur in those exact words anywhere in God's promises to Abraham. About three different times God makes promises to Abraham. I think Paul here is probably summing up God's promises that Abraham would have a large, a very large number of descendants from many nations, that he would possess the land, and that he would be the channel of blessing for all the peoples on the face of the earth. According to Galatians 3.16, Jesus Christ is that final seed, that final descendant of Abraham. And if we are in Christ through faith, then we are fellow heirs with Him. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, as verse, uh, in verse 9, as I said, the blessing, it refers really to verses 7 and 8, but it's, it, it, it's enumerating from Psalm 30, 32, namely the blessing of knowing that your lawless deeds have been forgiven, that your sins have been covered, and that God will not take your sins into account. Now, let me ask you, do you want that blessing? Forget about what's on the plate 
you know, after church. Forget about what your week consists of. Forget about the mountains that you see in front of you and what have you that might just absolutely consume you as it tends to do sometimes. We're here on this earth, you know, 50, 100 years is really something. Um, Eternity is a little bit longer than that, folks. This is the most important thing that you have to deal with. Okay? It's not your job. It's not your family. It's not your money. It's not any of that. It's what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? You're not going to get this blessing of having your sins forgiven and them covered, uh, you know, by being born into a Christian family or by faithful attendance at a, at a Christian church. You won't get it by being baptized or partaking of communion. You won't get the blessing of forgiveness by doing penance or devoting yourself to sacrificial service of the poor. Those, those are good things, but it's not going to do anything for you concerning salvation. In short, you're not going to get that blessing of salvation through any type of religious ritual or by keeping the law. Rather, God forgives all of our sins and credits Christ's righteousness to us if we simply put our faith in Jesus and His shed blood. Religion cannot save you, but folks, Jesus can. Trust in Him, and instantly you become an heir of God's promise of eternal life as His free gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Paul who puts things in a way that, that's hard to miss. He is a, he's a good attorney-like arguer. Father, he lays down the case that, yes, Abraham was justified by faith, and everybody that follows in that faith will be justified as well. So, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. If there's anybody in here this morning that do, doesn't know you as God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and Him as Lord and Savior, pre, please do a work in their heart. Help them to see Jesus for who He really is and come to know Him today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to have um, a uh, verse of invitation to give you a chance to respond. Uh, Tyler, I'm going to ask you to come up in case, you know. With, anyway, Tyler, I want you up here with me. Uh, if, if, if you, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you have recently and want to let the church know, you can come forward. Uh, we'll be glad to receive you this morning. If you're a Christian... Uh, even after after we've been saved, we tend to have, because of the flesh, because of our sin nature, we still tend to be prone to kind of impress, if not God, people huh, with our our religious rituals, with our, you know, our disciplines, with our works. And that's not the way it works. And it certainly doesn't work that way with God. You need to set those things aside and come to Him just as you are. I hope you're walking in Him today. If you know Christ, I hope that's how you're walking with Him today, in that honesty, that you have nothing in yourself to recommend to Him. And if you're going to do anything good that day, it's because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and He's going to do something through you. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.